Well, hello, interwebs. This is the first episode of the Orlando Ramirez Show. I'm Dr. Ramirez, and I'm here to be your host week in and week out on this particular podcast. So, you know, when I first set out to create this podcast, um, it's kind of gone through a variety of changes. Doing something like this on your own is a little... um, it's a little intimidating at first, um, but it's also it's also a bit fun too. I've had a I've had some fun thinking about this particular show, what I want to cover, um, you know, the different topics, how I want the show to go, and I think that's going to be a work in progress, especially over the first couple of weeks as I do this. Um, just to give you a little bit of background for those who might find this show. Um, and you're listening to this first episode, just to give you a little bit of background of who I am and why I'm doing this. Um, and my name is Dr. Orlando Ramirez. Um, and I w- I'm what you would call an organizational psychologist. And by that, I mean, I, I work with companies um, and teams to see how they're performing and I work with them to try to make them perform better, to find new efficiencies and new ways to be effective at doing what it is that they do. To put it very simply, um, my day-to-day activities is really that of a coach. So I go in and I coach teams and I coach leaders on how to um, identify their different processes and how to improve those processes and how teams can come together to get work done. Now, does that make me an expert in politics and current events, culture? Of course not. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make me an expert in that. It just makes me a voice, I guess. Um, several months ago, well, not necessarily several months ago, uh, for several years I've thought about doing something like this creating a podcast and getting my voice out there. Not really so much my voice per se, but uh, I found it to be a very intriguing way to be creative, to create something to send out into the world, share my thoughts about different things. For me, this is really more of of a hobby. Now, I've been thinking about this for a number of years, and in the, a couple of years back when I first started thinking about doing it, um, there was always that, uh, that thought that if I do it on my own, then it's a bit scary. I think creating anything and putting it out into the universe for other people to consume is, is a bit scary. And I always thought, well, <clears throat> if I can do it with a friend, if I can do something like this with a partner, then it takes some of the pressure off. It's something you're doing together. Uh, and if it's, if it's not good, well then eh, it's something that we did, right? It's not just entirely on your shoulders or my shoulders in this case. And a few months ago, I finally got up the gumption to actually uh, get started on doing something like this. And I roped in a friend of mine and uh, for a couple of months now, going on three months, we've been releasing a podcast consecutively 
uh, every week uh, called The Fusion Underground. You can find us at fusionunderground.net. And that show is a little similar to what I want to accomplish with this show. And what I quickly found out was that uh, I was having a lot of fun. I enjoy doing it. One, there's uh, the aspect of being able to sit down with a friend of mine every week and talk about different ideas, concepts, topics, things that we find interesting. And I have a lot of fun being able to connect with him like that. And we've received feedback from folks who find the show entertaining. And that's always a good thing. We've received feedback on how to improve it and make it better. And that's always a good thing too. And what I quickly realized is that I'm doing it for my own benefit, but I also realized that there were some other things that I wanted to be able to talk about that sort of fall outside of the purview of that particular show. Doing a two-person show is a little bit different than doing a one-person show. And so what I mean by that is if I have an idea for a topic, it may not be appropriate for two people talking about it. While I may have some passion around that particular topic, the other person may not. And when you have a two-person show, then you have to be thinking about, you're always thinking about, is this a conversation that can take place between the two of us? Knowing who the two hosts are, then you have to make sure that the topic is uh, relatable and um, applicable to both parties so that, they, so that not just one person is talking the entire time. But there are other topics that I wanna be able to discuss that are not so much appropriate. I don't wanna say appropriate, that's kind, of a, that's kind of a strong word, but um, it just doesn't fit in the two-person show. But there are still things that I wanna be able to talk about. And so that spawned this, all, this show here. And I think doing the other show, Fusion Underground, has given me, um, for lack of a better term, confidence, I, I guess, to, to speak and to throw my voice out there about a number of topics. So what is this show really about? Now that I'm getting this particular individual solo show off the ground, what is this one going to be about? Well, I have all kinds of, of interests that I want to share, that I want to get out there and talk about. Um, if I go back a few years, I've been a listener of various podcasts over the years. I've floated in and out of certain podcasts, uh, depending on how, the ch how those particular shows have changed. I listen to a variety of shows, shows ranging from political commentary and editorialists. I've listened to um, podcasts on film. I've listened to, com to comic book podcasts and video game podcasts. Those are also my interest interests. And aside from the um, from the political ones, well, the political ones get a little extreme at times, and so that tends to turn me off as I've gotten older. I don't really care for just a spouting of ideology. I prefer a little bit more nuance and, and thought about the topics that are being discussed. So the political ones don't necessarily hold my interest as much as they do in the past, as they did originally, I should say. 
as for the comic book ones, the film ones, the video game ones, I quickly realized that the hosts of those shows tend to be much more left-leaning than my, than my own personal views. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's their shows. I'm not, I've never criticized them. I've never told them not to talk about the things that they talk about. I just began to realize that, that those particular shows, as they go political, you know, normally starting off talking about video games or comic books and film, but as they tend to go, go political, that they don't really share my viewpoints. And I started thinking, is there a show out there that talks about cultural things that isn't such left-leaning? And I couldn't really find one like that. I couldn't really find a show that fit or really spoke to me as an individual. And so I thought, well, why not create that show? Why shouldn't I create it? Now, it's very possible I'm the only person who is looking for a podcast like this. It could be that I'm the only, the, the only conservative out there who wants to talk about current events, who also wants to talk about movies and video games and comic books and anything else. And what I really see this show as being is, is um, I really hope that people, if you're listening to the show, it's as if you and I are sitting down having a cup of coffee talking about the things that interest us. That's really what I hope this show's about. Do I expect to convert people? No. Do I expect to educate people on something that they are uneducated about? No, not necessarily. I just want to have a conversation and talk about the things that I find interesting. That's it. And if you are conservative, and if you like things like comic books and video games and cool movies, interesting books, television shows, other things that might be happening culturally, then hopefully there's a place here for you as a listener. And so that's what I wanted to, um, that's what I wanted the show to talk about. Another thing I wanted the show to talk about, or at least stand for, is I really would hope, if nothing else, that it stands as a voice for others who are Hispanic and conservative. You may not be interested in all of the things that I'm interested in, but you may at least be interested in listening about, listening to or, or discussions related to conservatism as conservatism affects Western culture. And if you are, then hopefully this show is a place for you. Why is that important? I think it's important because I don't think there are a lot of conservative voices out there that are Hispanic anyway. There are, and there are conservative voices and there are Hispanic voices, but I don't think there are that many Hispanic conservative voices out there. And so I wanted to be one. If you couldn't tell, my name is pretty Hispanic sounding. <laughs> Thanks to my parents. I, uh, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. I currently live here in the Valley in Phoenix. I have a huge Hispanic family. 
very large Hispanic family, although my immediate family of siblings is quite small. But I have a lot of cousins. Aunts and uncles and extended family, if you will. And I hope that there are others out there who are conservative and Hispanic who may be able to find this show and, and find something interesting in the show and, and listen to it as another voice speaking for them. Because too often today we get really taken aback or wrapped up in identity politics. We see a lot of that coming from the left. Leftists tend to view different groups of people and they like to co-opt them and bring them into the leftist fold, the collective thinking. If you're Hispanic, for example, it's almost as if you are supposed to vote for Democrats and in elections, or you must be a leftist in general. And I don't see that of myself. I don't believe that people should be pigeonholed into a way of group into a way of thinking based on the group to which they belong. We see that all too often with blacks, with Hispanics, with Asians, Asian Americans, for example. We see it with, with women voters, LGBT voters, LGBT groups, right? They all tend to be, they all tend to be considered or viewed as Democrat voters. And so really all that leaves for the conservative side are white males. And I just don't think that that's the case. And I think it's a very shallow way of looking at individuals. I'd prefer to look at people as, as being able to make up in their own minds and think their own ways and come to their own conclusions about things. So I did, I tend to, while I will in this show, talk about cultural things, talk about news and stuff like that, but through a conservative lens and hopefully shed some light on things that are important to Hispanics, but through a conservative lens. In fact, I tend to think most people are in fact conservative. They just don't realize it. And over the course of the show, I think we'll, we'll dive into, into some of that stuff. Okay. So enough of that, enough of me personally, I'm sure you'll, I'll, I'll um, talk more about who I am over the course of the show. And you'll come to find more, find out more about what I'm interested in over the course of the show. But uh, there are a couple of news items that I wanted to get into on this first one. Um, if you have been paying even a slight bit of attention to the news, you're probably quite aware of the racial tension that is um, inflicting our society for good or ill. Obviously those who are protesting think it's for good. There are some of the, some of us who think it's not so good. And one of the main areas that seems to be really striking the culture in regard to racial tensions right now is in Portland, Oregon. 
if you pay any attention to the news, you probably have heard about Portland, Oregon. It's been over 50 nights. I think it's something like 54, 53, 54 straight nights of protesting in Portland, Oregon. And that's just consecutive. Go back a couple of years, they were even protesting up in Portland. Um, you know, they created one of the first Chaz areas, right? The, the, what do they call it? I don't even remember what they called it. They had a, a, a no-go area where the protesters in downtown Portland, they, sec- they secured an, a city block or something like that, an alleyway, I don't remember. They put up some fences and essentially declared themselves autonomous from the rest of society. They did that a couple of years ago, but you know, now they've been, you know, the past 50 or so nights, protesters in Portland, Oregon have been going out at night and essentially rioting in some respects, in many respects, really. And if you pay attention to the media, if you believe what the media is telling you, at least those over at CNN and MSNBC, they would tell you that a lot of these gatherings are peaceful in Portland, that the, the protesters in Portland are peaceful people. The thing is, I don't necessarily believe that to be true. Now, do they start off peacefully? Sure, they probably do. I think it takes a bit of effort and people before a mob turns violent. I think you have to build up that energy before people begin to turn violent. Each night when the protesters go out, I'm sure they are peaceful. I'm sure they start off that way. But then as the hours progress and as the tempers flare and people start banding together, I think mob mentality begins to set in and then the mob breaks. And then they start rioting and they start burning things. They start damaging buildings. If you go out onto Twitter, YouTube, you can search for Portland. You can get videos of the, of the mob trying to break in into buildings and setting fire, applying graffiti to walls and such. Several weeks ago when the protests were, I think really at their height, um, you know, the protesters were damaging federal property. And that led, of course, to President Trump sending an executive order saying that protesters would be punished if they damage federal property. And then within the past week or so, we've seen federal agents arresting protesters, pulling them off the streets. Now, if you believe what the left has been telling you, then you would believe that federal agents are kidnapping people off the street, but that's not true. That's not what's actually happening. What's actually happening is the federal agents are arresting people who are damaging or suspected of damaging federal property so that those individuals can be brought up on charges. That's a lot different than capturing people and kidnapping them. In fact, many of these people that have been arrested have been released. So they're not actually being kidnapped. And if you, don't, if you don't believe me, you can easily go out to YouTube and, and to Twitter. You can search on just simply Portland 
And you can see the videos yourselves. There's plenty of videos of protesters causing damage to buildings, trying to break into the federal courthouse building, for example. And just the other night, they tried to break into the federal courthouse building. They were armed. The protesters themselves were armed with the intent to do violence. And the federal agents had to come out of the building and drive them away from the building to protect those who were inside and to secure the property of the federal courthouse building. I think what's even more astonishing really is the fact that these protests are supported by the local government in Portland, Oregon. The mayor doesn't seem to care that these riots have been taking place. Local police department seems to have been given orders to treat the protesters with kid gloves. They don't come down hard on the protesters to try to disperse them. I think the mayor has probably thought that, eh, just ignore them and they'll go away. Well, it's been over 50 nights of continuous protesting and they haven't gone away. So what now? So this has created some really interesting um, results. There's a story here. Uh, When did this story drop? The 19th. So this was on Sunday. Maybe this occurred Saturday and then it was printed Sunday. But this is a story out of... uh, the Los Angeles Times. And there's a picture of a naked woman sitting on the street, looks like a crosswalk, and she's got her legs wide open, spread wide open. She's sitting up, but her legs, she's facing the police force, the police department. And I don't understand this. I'm really... (laughs) They're calling her the naked Athena. I'm going to read some of this article here. It says, she emerged as an apparition from clouds of tear gas as federal agents fired pepper balls at angry protesters in the early Saturday darkness. A woman wearing nothing but a black face mask and a stocking cap strode toward a dozen heavily armed agents attired in camouflage fatigues lined up across a downtown Portland street. The agents dispatched by the Trump administration over vociferous objections of state and city officials are part of a force that has fired projectiles at and detained activists protesting nightly since the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police May 25th. Numerous photos and videos posted on Twitter show the unidentified woman as she halted in the middle of the street at about 1.45 a.m. She stood calmly, a surreal image of human vulnerability in the face of an overpowering force that has been criticized nationally by civil rights advocates. The agents in gas masks and helmets continued firing pepper balls in a staccato pop, pop, pop heard on video, aiming low at the asphalt, where puffs of smoke mingled with clouds of gas. At one point, a fellow protester clothed carrying a homemade shield darted in front of the woman, angling to protect her. But the woman sidestepped him. He jumped out of the way, perhaps realizing that he made them both a target. Before it was over, she struck ballet poses, and reclined on the street. She also sat on the asphalt, in a yoga-like position facing officers before they left. 
Portland has long been loved or mocked for its streak of earnest but quirky organic earthiness as portrayed in the Portlandia television comedy series. Sometimes the envelope pushing forms of expression involve nudity. Why is that though? Why is that? What is it that makes you think that if you're protesting something, that the best thing that you should do is to strip naked? I don't understand that. It's something that I've, I've also often wrestled with for a, for a number of years. We tend to see this from, from feminists on the left. I haven't seen any conservative women stripped down, and I don't even really see leftist males stripped down. But for some reason, leftist women, not all, of course, I think some of those more radical ones, they get the urge to strip down naked and then do things provocatively to draw attention to themselves. There was one video I saw the other day where there was about 50 women, feminists who stripped down naked. They were on a street somewhere and they just screamed. I don't mean they were yelling words or sentences at passersby. They were just screaming not vocalizing any word, just screaming, screeching sounds. To what purpose? To what end? I don't understand this. But for some reason, leftist women, radical women on the left, will strip down in order to protest something. Now again, I know that not all women are going to do this, and not all women on the left are going to do this. I, don't, I, just, I don't understand what it is in this subgroup that feels the need to strip naked and then screech or conduct ballet poses in front of police officers. I don't, under, I don't understand. And I don't think I will ever understand. And I think if anybody tried to explain it to me, I probably still would not understand it. But here we are. The article goes on and says, a Portland tavern owner, Bud Clark, gained fame during the 1980s before his election as mayor via popular Expose Yourself to Art poster, showing him in a raincoat discreetly flashing a bronze nude sculpture. Uh, uh, let me go back to the, a little bit further down. I don't know why the article gets off, off kilter there. Um, here it goes in the article. The woman making her statement Saturday was altogether uninhibited at one point standing on one leg and raising her arms in an arc-type motion. As she struck ballet poses, a patrol car arrived and a dozen officers in blue uniforms replaced the line of agents, whom officials described as having been targeted by protesters throwing rocks, bottles, and pieces of metal. She sat in the street facing them, legs spread in the, in the headlight, headlights glare. Later, she rolled on her back in a graceful pose, then stood again. The second group of officers, who may have been either Portland police or federal agents, also left. In all, the woman's appearance lasted about 15 minutes. News photographers said she slipped away uninjured into the crowd. Images of her on social media harked back to previous iconic but clothed images juxtaposing force and vulnerability, such as the 1967 photo of a Vietnam War protester who faced a line of U.S. troops and placed a carnation into the barrel of a soldier's rifle. In an ultimate act of defiance broadcast worldwide, a man stood in front of a column of tanks leaving Beijing's Tiananmen Square on June 5, 1989, a day after the Chinese military had suppressed protests by force. 
Nudity has also served as a form of protest since at least the 11th century, when legend holds that Lady Godiva rode naked, veiled only by her long hair on a horse through Coventry, England, to protest oppressive taxation. Again, I don't understand why. I mean, I get that that nudity is considered a form of protest, but why nudity and not just, I don't know, protesting? On Twitter, sympathetic commentators were quick to conclude that Naked Athena, as they dubbed the Portland protester, caused the officers to turn tail. Really? The officers saw a naked woman and they decided to leave? I don't buy that. But the reason for their departure is not clear from a review of multiple images. Federal, of federal officials and police did not comment on the woman. Others on Twitter said the performance by a white woman distracted from protests of injustices faced by black people. Oh, look at there. So this white woman, she took too much of, it, of the attention away from black protesters. Because remember, this is all about Black Lives Matter, apparently. So even when people are protesting on their behalf, even when people are trying to protest against the same quote-unquote authoritarian state that they think they live in, it's not good enough because she distracted from the real voices, I guess. Anyway, this, this goes on for quite a while. Just, you know, talking about naked Athena. But here's the thing that I don't understand about the Portland protests in general. What are they protesting? There are some people who would say, well, they're protesting for Black Lives Matter. They're trying to say, well, Black lives are important and that they matter. For the most part, I agree with that sentiment. I agree that just human lives in general matter. And when we're talking about things in our country, I agree that, I, that American lives matter. The problem that I have with this whole protesting is when you go back and look at the demands of the BLM organizers, their demands are pretty egregious in terms of what it is that they want. And they're very vague. In most, in most respects, they, want, they essentially want uh, free stuff. It's hard, to, it's hard to garner support for a group of people who want things like free education or free healthcare and free housing and the right to a job. And the, and the right to a certain uh, wage amount for, for work, okay? And those are all things that, that Black Lives Matter, that BLM organizers have demanded uh, from government. If there are legitimate injustices that are being performed, then those specific injustices should be outlined with a plan on how to remove them. But that's not what's happening here. But think about this for a minute. What actually are the protesters protesting? You're talking about a group of leftists who in many respects, if you look at the, and the reason why I call them leftists is because when you look at their demands, when you look at their ideology that they profess, when you look at the banners, the signs that they create and take to these protests, they're all left-leaning. There are people out there with hammer and sickles. There are people out there, you know, showing very socialist iconography. 
I think if you go into this crowd, into the crowd and you pull them, I think the vast majority of them will align with socialism, will align with communism. There are many people in this country who want this, and these are leftist protesters who want these types of things. They do exist. They're there. But what I don't understand is you have these leftists who are protesting, and they live in a leftist city run by other leftists. Portland is not a conservative city. Oregon is not a conservative state. So who are they protesting? Who are they trying to affect change with? Are they trying to get Portland to be more left, more collectivist? Are they trying to get Oregon to be more collectivist? I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's their end game. It's not like these leftists have traveled from Portland to protest in front of the White House. Maybe some have, but not all of them, certainly. So what's their end game? Do they even have an end game? Why protest in Portland of all places? It's their leftist utopia. So I just don't, I just don't get that. The other thing that I think is a little unruly or just disgusting about Portland is that many Democrat, many Democrat authorities have endorsed these, these uh, protests slash riots. And I call them, you know, yes, I've been calling them protests. I know there are some on the, uh, there are some conservatives who just call them blanketly refer to them as riots. And I think they, I think they devolve into riots. I think they do start off as protests, but I think they devolve into riots. And I'm really hesitant to refer to them as protests as well, because these protesters are blocking city streets. They're impeding the rights of others who actually live in the city. And that's where I draw the line. So I'm, I'm referring to them as protesters only insofar as they are not causing harm and damage to anybody else. But that's a fine line for, the, for this group of people. It's a fine line because it quickly devolves into the destruction of property. But there are many, there are many people on the left, not just in democratic circles, but also in the media, who have given support to these protesters. Whether it be uh, in terms of support, um, in terms of words and language and stories written about them, comments about them, but also in terms of money. Many of these people have donated to these, to these causes to, that go specifically to these protesters, but even locally, at the local level in Portland. The city council and the mayor's office, as well as the police department, have given a lot of cover and have allowed these protests to, to continue for 50 plus days. And if that's the case, if the city, which we know is providing cover, we know city officials of Portland, Oregon have come out and said that they um, 
that they are disenfranchised with the federal government and that they endorse and support these protests. So isn't that not a civil war? How is it not classified as a civil war? I think we're, I think we're technically fighting a civil war now in Portland, Oregon. It's not the protesters versus the city. It's protesters versus the federal government. And those protesters are backed by local government. So you have the local government using the protesters as essentially a militia force going after trying to tear down pieces of the federal government. And I think Americans need to have a conversation about this. I think Americans need to ask themselves, are you okay with that? Now, I know there will be some people that will be okay with that because they hate Trump. But is that reason enough? Is that truly reason enough? Can people point to any specific examples of oppression caused by the federal government to private citizens? Does that exist anywhere? And if so, I would love to hear about it. If that is the case, that's egregious and we should absolutely do something about it. But where is the oppression? It's one thing for people to say it. And I know many people say that they're oppressed. But if you're oppressed, that means an action has been done to you. So what action has been done to you? Can you point specifically to an activity that has been done to you that we would call oppression? And I don't really think we can. I think most people would be really hard pressed to do that. I have an article here. It's from the National Review. And the article is titled, Poll, Majority of Voters Say U.S. Society is Racist. Um, what's interesting is you read through this, this article and it talks about how the majority of voters, 56%, believe that American society is racist. This is according to a Wall Street Journal and NBC News poll. 82% of Democrats polled agreed that American society is racist more than any other subset included in the polling, including blacks and Hispanics. 90% of Dems said black people are discriminated against. Now, wait a minute. 90% of blacks, or I'm sorry, 90% of Dems of Democrats said black people are discriminated against. What we're talking about here, if 90% of Dems have said that, then the vast majority of them, of those people polled are not blacks. They didn't poll black Democrats. They just polled Democrats or part of them, right? And so according to this poll, 90% of Dems said, well, blacks are discriminated against. That's a belief statement. How are blacks being discriminated against in the United States? Now, if you point to um, police officers killing black males, the data is against you. The data is absolutely against you. Very few black men are actually killed being arrested. Does it happen? Yes, it does. But it doesn't happen disproportionately compared to whites or other, or other racial groups. 
it may be disproportionate in terms of blacks themselves. But the other reality that goes along with that is blacks perform a disproportionate number of violent crimes. So the odds are that when a police officer goes in or a set of police officers goes in to arrest a black male, it's very likely that they're arresting a black male who has already committed a violent crime. And so now we have a violent criminal who may or may not want to go peacefully. And if they don't go peacefully, then that can result in um, violent action taken by police officers in order to subdue the violent criminal. And that can result in death. But the data, if you believe that, if you believe police are going around and are murdering black men and are, have declared some kind of open season on black males, you'd be mistaken. You'd be absolutely wrong. The data doesn't support that. It's not my data. It's data coming directly from the FBI. It doesn't support that at all. So now we have a situation here, as revealed by this poll, that Americans believe that blacks are discriminated against and oppressed. So we can't even really point to actual acts of oppression. All we can point to is what we believe might be happening to other groups of people that aren't even us. If you're a white Democrat, then you believe that blacks are discriminated against, but you have no proof of that. What about the discrimination against Asians, Asian Americans here in this country? There are these things called universities. And many of these universities are changing the entrance requirements so that more blacks and more Hispanics can be admitted into the universities. But there's a problem because these universities only have so so much, so many seats in open classrooms. So there are a finite number of seats at these universities. So if we're going to increase the number of Hispanics and Blacks who are admitted to a specific university, then somebody else has to be kicked out. Who is getting kicked out? Well, whites are getting kicked out, but nobody seems to really care about that. But what's also happening is Asians are being kicked out. And Asians are also being held to a higher standard. So many universities around the nation are actually lowering their their entrance requirements for Blacks and Hispanics, maintaining a certain level of requirement for whites, and then increasing the requirement for Asians. Why? Well, because people think that the Asians can already do it. There's this stereotype and keep in mind, many stereotypes are, are rooted in, um, in reality. They have a basis for reality. That's why they developed into stereotypes. But the stereotype is, is that the Asians will understand how to do everything. They're smarter. They're smarter than everybody. So they've increased requirements on Asians and decreased the requirements on Blacks and Hispanics. 
And by doing so, you're increasing the odds that the blacks and Hispanics are not even going to finish university. They might get into it and find that it's too difficult for them. Why? Because we've made it seem too easy for them to begin with. And then if reality changes that perception, then they're more likely to, to bow out. Don't agree with me? Well, think of it this way. Over the last 20 or 30 years, we've, we've, we've been forced at the university level to create what are called remedial math courses. And the reason why we had to do that is because it became, uh, teach, professors started realizing that blacks coming out of high school into the university were not well equipped to handle college algebra. And so remedial classes had to be created just to get these new students who were not prepared, get them up to speed so that they could be prepared for what laid ahead, uh, laid ahead of them uh, in terms of college curriculum. Okay. And so the folks who have looked into this remedial problem have recognized that if you take somebody and you put them into a remedial math course, that some of those people get discouraged. They get discouraged because they feel like they're dumber. They feel dumb than everybody else, dumber than everybody else. They realize that, oh my gosh, I have to do this all over again. Didn't I just do this in high school? Or and now it's going to take me a little bit longer to get through to get through college to get my college degree. And so there's a there's an increased likelihood that students that are forced into remedial classes at the college level have an increased uh, chance of not graduating entirely. So if we're lowering the bar for blacks and Hispanics. And then we have to force them to go into remedial classes because they do not have the chops in order to take college algebra. Then the likelihood, or it's an increased likelihood that they're going to drop out of college. But yet, who did we kick out so that those blacks and Hispanics could take that seat? Well, we've kicked out some whites and some Asians. And I think that is the big, I think that is um, a bigger disservice. Yeah, you may see it as a, as a service for people of color, for blacks and Hispanics, but it's a disservice to those who, to those individuals who truly want and who truly want to be there and have the potential to be there. Look, I'm not saying that blacks and Hispanics shouldn't go to university, but they should have to they should have to rise to the challenge to do so. I certainly did. And I know other Hispanics that did. And I know other blacks who did. It's okay to challenge students. It's okay to tell them what the bar is, but you need to tell them what the bar is. You need to be real with these people. You need to be real with the blacks and Hispanics so that they understand what it is that they're getting into. They are human beings after all. They should understand what success looks like so that they can hit it. It's not because they're dumb. It's not because they're incapable. They're absolutely capable. They're human beings. They're absolutely capable of doing well in school. But we need to stop dumbing things down for them. 
we need to stop making it overly easy for them to get in because that's not reality. The reality is not the easiness of getting in. The reality is the difficulty in completing the degree. It's not about it being hard per se. It's about making the degree mean something when they're done. It's about learning and acquiring an education. And if we make it easier, if we make it too easy for people to get into, into university, then we're doing a disservice to them. We're telling them, you don't really need to learn anything. At least we're telling them up front. And I get it. It's all so that they can, they can get a degree and hopefully earn higher wages later in life. And that's, that's definitely a goal for anybody to shoot for. But they need to understand it. They need to understand what it actually takes to be successful. We need to tell them that. We don't need to lower the bar for them. Okay. Enough of that. I think we, we, I think we talked a little bit about that for quite a while. One last thing, which I think is interesting. It does have to do with, uh, with this whole racial divide. The Associated Press has come out and said that the language of using white and black to describe skin color will continue by using capital B for black, but lowercase w for white. And I'm not even joking here. So here's a, um, this is an article from the Washington Examiner. It's the, um, it's an opinion piece titled The Associated Press's Separate and Unequal Language for Blacks and Whites. After review and period of consultation, we, this is uh, the AP, we found at this time less support for capitalizing white. White people generally do not share the same history and culture or the experience of being discriminated against because of skin color. In addition, AP is a global news organization and there is considerable disagreement, ambiguity, and confusion about whom the term includes in much of the world. The statement adds, we agree that white people's skin color plays into systemic inequalities and injustices, and we want our journalism to robustly explore those problems. But capitalizing the term white, as is done by white supremacists, risks subtly conveying legitimacy to such beliefs. It continues conceding that there are legitimate concerns that a failure to capitalize W while also capitalizing B would represent a major inconsistency for the AP style book. No kidding. You reckon that's like saying, that's like saying people named Joe will have the J capitalized because it's a proper name, but people named Scott will be, will not have the first letter of their name capitalized. That's what's basically saying here. It's kind of an idea. So of course there's an inconsistency in style. The article continues. The news organization also concedes that there is a legitimate argument that leaving the W in lowercase implies that white is the default. I'm not really sure how they get that, but whatever. The AP even concedes that capitalizing the W could perhaps pull white people more fully into issues and discussions of race and equality. But nevertheless, the news group will continue to capitalize one and not the other. Um, it goes on to, to talk about how they came about this decision. They included, um, they got a bunch of 
so-called experts to weigh in on the, to, to give their opinions on the idea. And um, which tells me that probably a lot of people that have, um, you know, intersectionality in their, in their resumes on their CVs have probably weighed in. Um, it says, it says, and here's the thing. It took two years for them to make this decision. Danishevsky, I think is how you pronounce the name, said the change comes after more than two years of in-depth research and discussion with colleagues and respected thinkers from a diversity of backgrounds, both within and from outside the cooperative. These changes align with longstanding capitalization of other racial and ethnic identifiers, such as Latino, Asian American, and Native American, he writes. Our discussions on style and language consider many points, including the need to be inclusive and respectful in our storytelling and the evolution of language. We believe this change serves those ends, blah, blah, blah. I don't think we can really take the Associated Press's word at this. Well, we can take their word at it, but I think their, I think their whole, what I mean by that is just their entire argument. I don't think we can take that seriously because this is just more more woke crap that I think does a disservice to just people in general. I think it, I think it's insulting. If you read some something like this and if you think that that's okay, I really believe you need to do some soul searching because I think you're part of the problem. Look, capitalize it or don't capitalize it, but be consistent. It's not about making a political statement based on the capitalization of a word. It's about style. If you want to capitalize black when referring to black Americans or black people, that's okay. You can do that. Do it, but be consistent. If you're then talking about in the same written document you're writing or in a different document even entirely, if you're talking about white people, then capitalize the W. It's, a, it's about style. It's not about importance. It's not about making a political statement. I think using things like Latino or Asian American or Native American is a little bit different than referring to somebody as black or referring to somebody as white. But that's neither here nor there. I really don't care. You want to capitalize the word or not, doesn't matter to me. Be consistent. Again, it's more about, it's, off, it's all about style in this case. And it's about being consistent so that you're not confusing readers and I get it. You want to, they, want to, they want to capitalize black because they want to draw attention to the fact that we're talking about a person, not the color, not this, a general term or a general color, the black car versus a black person. If we're referring to a black person, we want to show how it's a proper descriptor. That's okay. Versus when I refer to something like a black car, that's not a proper description of the, of the term or of the object, right? Because we're talking about the object itself, the person versus an inanimate object. So if you want to capitalize it in one, that's fine. But just simply be consistent. The Associated Press is not being consistent here, which just speaks to the sheer insanity that exists in the world. Um, because that's all this is. This is just absolute insanity. It's not rooted in any, you know, they, they try to pass these kinds of things off as being a principled, a principled um, conclusion uh, at, done after or, you know, made after much, after a lot of thought into the topic. 
right? Whatever. It's just a bunch of, it's just a bunch of, of BS is really all it is. Um, and I think it just speaks to the lack of integrity at the organization. To be in, to have integrity in the situation is just simply to make a new style change. And you can do that, make the style change, but make it applicable across all different contexts and scenarios. Make it so that it's clear that people don't have to guess. You make a style change to make your writing clearer, to make it consistent. That's what style is all about. And here they're making a style claim that's not consistent. All right, so enough of that. Um, I think I've rambled on long enough for the first episode here. I think I spent a little bit too much time on the whole racial divide stuff, so I'll try to make up for that in the next episode. So I intend to, um, I don't know how often I'm gonna release this. It'll, it'll at least be once a week. Um, it might be more than that. There are a lot of topics I wanna talk about, I wanna cover. I'm probably going to aim, I'm, you know, I'm trying to aim for an, an hour episode, an hour per episode. Um, if I talk, if I release more episodes, then obviously I can talk about a variety of things all the time. Each episode might be, you know, one episode might be about movies. Another episode might be about politics. Another one might be about current events, et cetera. We'll see how it goes. I really don't know how, how it's going to play out. But anyway, you can, you can capture, you can um, find all of my stuff at my website at omramirez.com. Um, that's where this is going to be found anyway, and it'll be propagated out. You'll be able to find the, um, the podcast. It's now available. The podcast is actually available um, on most podcast feeds. So you can find it off of Anchor, Breaker, Spotify, Google Podcast, Radio Public, Stitcher, definitely on Stitcher. And I believe it also got published out. It's now on Apple podcasts as well. So you can find it there. Um, so head to my, you can head to my page, omramirez.com. You'll be able to find all of these episodes there or find it through your favorite um, podcast feeds. And, um, and that's about it for me. Hope you found the, hope you found the show and liked it, listened to it all the way. And, um, you know, like the show on all the different um, feeds that you find it on. Would, I would uh, appreciate that. It helps me uh, get it out, get the show out there to more people. And I'll just continue to iterate on the show and make it something, um, something amazing for, for listeners. So again, thanks for listening. Until next time, take care.